Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips. And I'm Victoria Hillman. And we're very lucky today to be joined by Paul Williams. Hello, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi, Neil. Hi, Vic. Thanks for coming on the show. Paul, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm a producer and director at the BBC Natural History Unit in Bristol. And I have a very fortunate job in that I get to make wildlife films for the BBC. And I've been doing that now for about 20 years. And I've worked on quite a few things from from the very first Spring Watch all the way through to Big Cats, Life, Blue Planet and now Green Planet. Some of our listeners may have heard of one or two of those programmes. (laughs) (laughs) And if you've not seen Green Planet yet... Why not, basically? Yeah. It's the highlight of my career so far, I've got to say. Uh, uh, it's been absolutely fascinating. Well, as a viewer, I found it brilliant as well. Uh, we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Um, do you want to do the next question, Vic? So let's kind of start off at the beginning. And kind of how did you get into it? And how did you kind of get to where you are now in with what you're doing? I'm from a small town called Rotherham uh, up in Yorkshire. And I first became obsessed by natural history when I was when I was on a school trip on the beach in Robin Hood's Bay and I found a fossil, an ammonite, and that kind of set me on a path to ultimately becoming a paleontologist and I, and I worked at the Natural History Museum in London and I was doing paleobotany actually at the time and I got a request to advise on a series about evolution that the BBC was making at the time and I went, I went along for a few weeks to give advice and suggest ideas for, for stories and essentially ended up staying there I've been there 20 years so that was kind of my shortcut into the BBC but it was a uh, it was just the passion of paleontology that kind of got me there really and, and an understanding of dinosaurs and kind of where nature comes from and I think that that underpinning of the animals and, and the natural history that we see today having an understanding of how it all got there how these ecosystems came about how life evolved just kind of spurs my curiosity something i can relate to <laughs> From, <laughs> i did paleobiology and evolution at university and a master's in micropaleontology as people listen to the last episode will know or episode well, before neil last. you never said you did a you did a master's in micropaleontology yep did you know that i also did a master's in micropaleontology not the UCL Natural History Museum. I did team. the UCL one. That is how I ended up at the Natural History Museum doing paleobotany. Oh, who knows? Maybe in twenty years I'll be working where you are. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It's very, it's very rare that I meet anybody who's a micropaleontology. I know. Yeah. Well, see, that's, this is where my love of ostracods comes from. You see, because my <laughs> master's project was on ostracods, although the more recent ones. <laughs> and my master's project was on Prasiniophyte algae. Uh, of the of the German, I think I think it was the Muschelkalk Basin in Germany. So not not quite on the level of ostracods, but I found no. it fascinating at the time. God, well, there's definitely a podcast on ostracods coming at some point. When, <laughs> there's just so much stuff to in the into summer them. when I'm not here. Yes, well, yes. You could do a whole podcast on, on the sexual appendages of an ostracod. Exactly. Maybe we should quickly mention Paul. Uh, we have met. Oh, we worked out was it ten years ago? I think it was when Eden Channel started, wasn't it? There was a question and answer with. David Attenborough, yeah. with Ben Fogel interviewing him, and we, you got to ask him a question, and we chatted for a while beforehand and after, and I seem to remember you saying something about, oh, I'm not sure if, you know, Sir David will remember me. I should imagine he, he remembers you now, wouldn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I've worked, worked with David quite quite a bit since then, actually, and uh, it's always a massive privilege spending time with, with David Attenborough, because his enthusiasm, as everybody knows, is completely infectious. But what I, what I love about David Attenborough is that he's willing to get stuck in even at 95 years old 
having seen everything, he still finds natural history exciting. And we, on Green Planet, we, we actually had all these great ideas on how can we get David up close and personal to plants in the natural world in a way that he hasn't done for decades. And in the Deserts episode, there's this cactus called the Choya cactus. And it's covered in these spines, which are like shards of glass and backward pointing barbs. And if you've ever been to Arizona, you, you've probably got these in your ankles. I, w- I would often get, get them in my backside because I'm filming low to the ground. And I had an idea to get a thick red glove with a Kevlar lining, get David to put the glove on, and he'd thrust his hand inside the cactus. And when he pulls his hand out, he's, he's covered in these spiny prickles. But David was so enthusiastic about doing that, that actually he put his hand in so hard and enthusiastically that the spines went through the glove into his hand. So David, David Attenborough, on camera, delivering his piece, is expressing the pain he's feeling from being spined by this vicious cactus. He did get a little bit enthusiastic about that, didn't he? You know, yeah. When we saw it, it was just like, probably wouldn't have gone in so hard, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when he took his glove off, what he didn't see on the camera is that, you know, when we stopped filming, he took his glove off and he had these kind of red, kind of little, little welts where the spines had gone through. And, and we had to pluck them out with pliers. But David just loves being close to nature and he chalked it up to being a true desert experience. Oh, nice. I remember when the current situation started, shall we say, there was a massive thing on Twitter which was, quick, find David Atterborough, wrap him up in cotton wool, keep everyone away from him and everything like that. <laughs> I thought of there was a story when, is it Early Life, the series on early fossils? And uh, the producer on that series was telling the story how she turned round and he's about 100 metres up a sheer cliff looking for fossils and she just, <laughs> she panicked at that point because <laughs> she thought, oh God, if he dies and I'm responsible. <laughs> yeah, as I say, uh, if you're anywhere in the wild with David Attenborough, you mm. turn your back and he's investigating <laughs> and looking and studying and, and you know, he, he loves speaking with scientists and researchers around the world. And, uh, you know, often we'd find fascinating. We, we could have spent months talking with scientists about a story before we go and film with them. But when David Attenborough is there talking with you, we, we find so much more. We, we find real gems and nuggets oh, stories. And fantastic. I think it's David's charm, really, and, and his curiosity. Somebody described him, actually, as a 95-year-old schoolboy. And that kind of sums him up. He's got he's got that, that kind of slightly cheeky curiosity where he, he you can tell he absolutely loves what he's doing. And I think still having that curiosity at 95 is, you know, it, it's inspirational. But also just, I think it, it is infectious as well, isn't it? Yeah, they, there's that moment that that I think was a massive hit from the series, actually, where David was filming in Cambridge Botanical Gardens, where the ecbalium, the squirting cucumber, and it's when he knocks it with a stick and 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 the seed pod squirts off, and it's just it's just hilarious, and it's it's his response, genuine glee, and he just finds it so amusing. I'll tell you what, when he triggers the Himalayan balsam seeds, I think everyone that's ever done conservation work along a river screams, <laughs> "No!" <laughs> Because <laughs> that's the thing you try not to do with that, isn't it? For, for those that know, Himalayan balsam is incredibly invasive, and but not in a garden setting where he was, so don't worry, he hasn't done anything wrong. But if it's by a river, it will literally fill up a river valley and overtake everything else. So, backtracking slightly, what is the Green Planet series and what is it all about? Okay, well, the Green Planet is all about parallel world of plants. And I say parallel world because it feels quite science fiction. It feels like another planet. And I think in, in order to film plants on their timescale, we had to really try very new techniques and develop new technology in order to travel into that world and film plants behaving. Because in natural history films, it's all about behavior. But of course, you point a camera at a plant and it doesn't do very much most of the time. So you have to speed up time, use time lapse, see plants grow. 
And when you do that, you see that plants are fighting, they're stealing, you know, they, they're doing incredible things. And so the series is all about taking people into that world so that we can see plants as the living, breathing organisms that they are. I think it's, it's great because it, it covers everything, doesn't it? You've done, you know, cacti, succulents, carnivorous plants, like lilies. It, just, it covers everything, mm. you know, in terms of the plants. It's... We try to be as global as we could and, and we try to cover as many as many groups of plants as we could. And, and fungus, actually. Fungus plays a key role in the series throughout. But ultimately, it's about the relationship that plants have with fungus or plants have with animals be it mammals, birds or insects. So it's, But it's always the plant is in charge. The plant is the character. The plant is the hero. And I find it really refreshing to have a series where the animals are almost just... They're, they're the kind of the, the bee cast. They're, they're, they're the supporting cast. But the stars are the plants. We filmed it in the, in the tropical episode. That there's one story, which is a story I tried to film seven years ago and failed. And it's, a, it's the corpse flower. Uh, I, I, I guess you remember this one. It's it's yeah. it's one of my favourites. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading about that flower. Biggest single flower in the world is in all the books when I was a kid on rainforests. So that's one thing I'd have loved to have seen as well. So very jealous of yeah, that. Yeah, and I've been, I've been to Borneo. I, I went with my wife to Borneo on honeymoon to try and find the Rafflesia. And the best we found was one that, that, that was a few days old. It was black and dead, pretty much. And I tried seven years ago to film it for another series. And... I set up all the time-lapse cameras around and the flower started opening and then it stopped halfway. It just stopped. Oh. It didn't open. And so we failed on that occasion. But on this occasion, I was in Borneo filming... I was filming the Ditrocarp trees, actually, uh, and the seeds falling. And I got a call from a scientist saying, we have a Rafflesia. It's about to open. I'd get here as soon as you can. So we changed our plans, went into, into the forest, and we set up seven cameras around the, this this large swarthen bud. And the next morning, I mean, we covered it with tarps. We tried to keep it as waterproof as we could. But the next morning when we came back, it had rained so much that half of the cameras had stopped working for some reason. They were wet or there was too much humidity. But the half of the, kind of the three cameras that I'd carried on managed to capture this amazing giant Rafflesia opening. And it's like a metre across. But it's when you put your head into the flower, that's when it becomes remarkable. Because it smells, it smells like rotting flesh. We, we've all encountered roadkill on a hot day. That smell, that's exactly what this flower smells like. And, you know, as soon as it opens, there are flies buzzing around. And, it, and it's just this remarkable evolution. How, how did it evolve to mimic a dead animal? And and the flies come in and they get dabbed with the pollen from the Rafflesia and then and then in order to pollinate another Rafflesia they need to they need to get tricked again and so this this flower has found a way to beat all its competition and to almost have exclusive access to flies mm. and I I find that absolutely fascinating yeah. really I I have to think so my husband and I went to Borneo on our honeymoon as well funnily enough I think I might have been drawing the line a little bit if I said to him can we go and find the corpse flower on our honeymoon <laughs> he he, ex- he accepted the Wallace flying frog and, and the other frogs and stuff but I think the corpse flower might have been a step too far <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny because there are so parasites I, I find are just the best stories and, and the, the Rafflesia is not just a corpse flower it's also a parasite on a vine so, it, so it's like the ultimate freaky science fiction plant but, but there's one in the deserts, and a lot of people might have these as houseplants. It's called Stapelia, and, it, and it's a succulent. And it, it grows in the Karoo Desert in South Africa, and it grows these large buds the size of tennis balls. And when they open, 
it's like a starfish. It's mm. it's hairy, it's red, it's wriggly. And in time lapse, you see it squirming like a starfish wriggling around. But again, it smells of rotting flesh and it attracts flies. Yeah. So you can have a whole house full of these <laughs> dead corpse flower type things. That'd, that'd be a new one for when he gets home. Um, I just bought these new flower, flowers instead. He'd be like, why does our house smell so bad? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because the... Is it the... Arum lily, the oh, it is Arum lily, isn't it? It's got loads of names. Cuckoo pint. I think that smells faintly of dead animals yeah. or something. It's attracting flies. But, uh... Yeah, the, the 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 Titan Arum amorphophallus. Does that smell of it as well or not? It's oh yes. Private life of plants. It's in in Sumatra. Mm. It's huge. They must all be the same group, I guess. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One came out in queue a couple of years ago, didn't it? I think they produce like hundreds and hundreds of these seeds and then hornbills come and come and feed on them so i i would have loved to have filmed that story actually if we if we ever do another series i'd love to film the amorphophallus because that's the biggest flower but it's lots of flowers so the profesa is technically the biggest single flower so i can't remember it's something to do with the records and i remember it, this is going back to my yeah. childhood i'm trying to remember this from so <laughs> distant old memories yeah yeah exactly exactly they, they're, they're both called the biggest flower in the world but in different ways Here's kind of a, a bit of a question for you. Like how, obviously there's so many, you know, so much variety of plant species, so many plant, plant species. How do you kind of pick which ones to, to film or to feature? Yeah, I mean, I, I always look for what's going to be the most surprising, what's something that, that either people haven't heard about or something that is so extraordinary. It hasn't been done in such a long time, we need to do it again. And, and so at, at the beginning of a series, which was four years ago now, we we spent months and months and months speaking with scientists and, and plant and botanists all, all around the world, making this huge list of all the possible stories. And then we go through it and try and work out, you know, throughout the series, how can we have the biggest, most diverse range of stories that's going to give people an insight into this world. And, and then within each episode, because the programmes are themed around habitat, kind of like the Planet Earth series was, we have deserts, we have seasonal worlds, we have water, we have tropical... It's it's what what stories can we find where they are closely aligned w- w- with the pressures and the problems of living in these very particular worlds. So in the deserts episode, most of the stories, in fact, almost all the stories, it's all about how do you get water, and then once you've got it, how do you protect yourself from from your enemies who are trying to steal water from you. So yeah, it's just a lot of a lot of wading through scientific papers as much as we can, trying to find new stories trying to find cutting edge stories and and insights Uh, and also how can the technology help us because we want to get closer and show detail as much as we can there's a plant in south africa it it was actually the very last plant we filmed on the series it's called lithops and uh, the stone plant most people probably heard of it it's one of those weird little plants that you kind of hear about when you're a child it's a plant which looks like a rock and i never knew but when you film that plant in super macro detail you see that that the top of the plant is covered in these like cellular structures. They look like the end of glass bottles. So it's like the end of, of hundreds of glass bottles all packed together. And these glass bottles or these cells, which look like glass bottles, they focus the light down underground. So this plant has all of its photosynthetic material, all of its chloroplasts actually underground, hidden away. And that helps it to keep all of its greenery out of sight of anything which might want to eat it. And so it's when you get super macro and see that detail, 
you see these incredible adaptations. Mm. I've, I've always fancied, because you used to be able to buy them, didn't you, as a house plant? I don't know if you still can very easily. You, you still can, mm. from more from specialists, but you can still well, buy they, them. They used to be yeah. in the cacti section, that's why I know about them. Mm. We'll talk a bit more about cacti later, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when they flower, they're beautiful. They're absolutely beautiful. Obviously, you, know, you said you, you started, was about four years ago working on this. Obviously, we've been coming up for two years now going through the pandemic has that actually had any effect or you know has, has that kind of had to change how you've done things Cause i know a few bits have been filmed in the uk as well you know has that influenced or kind of given you obstacles to try and get over with the filming yeah i mean i think i mean it's completely true that had the pandemic not hit the series would have been quite different because there were a whole load of stories that we were planning to film that we just couldn't because we couldn't get to these places or, you know, we just didn't have scientists on the ground anymore who could give us the latest inf- information. So we had to really change strategy. And actually, w- the good thing about making a series on plants is that a lot of the detail, a lot of the time lapse we could do in the UK because we had studios where we were recreating some of the environments in order to film th- some of the bigger time lapse pieces. And we brought some of the robots into our bathroom. Some of our team turned their bathrooms into mini studios. I installed a colony of leaf cutter ants in my garage so that the time lapses in the tropical episode of the fungus growing, the leaf cutter ant fungus growing and swelling and moving, that and most of that was filmed in my garage during lockdown because we just couldn't get out into the field to do it. So we just had to adapt and change strategies. And But the biggest stroke of luck that has made this series is that all the filming with David Attenborough, except some of the UK shoots, we finished all of that before the pandemic hit. The the very last shoot, which was to Finland, had to film in snowy tiger forest. That was filmed two weeks before Britain went into lockdown. I wasn't on that shoot, but the crew landed. And then a few days later, we were told to basically go home and, and isolate. And, and so that's what happened. And so all of David's filming was done just in the nick of time. That is lucky. Yeah, I noticed, <laughs> I think somebody, it might be something you posted or somebody posted that the New Forest filming was autumn 2019. I thought that was tight, but it sounds like it was even tighter than that. It has been, been a mammoth undertaking. And, and, you know, I think I think we were incredibly lucky to get the stories that we did before lockdown happened and to film what we did. Interesting stuff. So you've been a lot of places filming a lot of things for a lot of series. Have you had a favourite wildlife encounter out of all of those? Hard to pick, isn't it? <laughs> things like this it is, it is hard to pick i mean gosh i could tell you about the time i was surrounded by eighty thousand budgies or or the time a leopard almost jumped in the in the back of the truck with me or or, or the time elephants can't they we had a standoff with a with a whole herd of giant elephants in india <laughs> there are so many encounters but actually i think i think one of my favorite was actually the time we were filming ocelots for uh, for big cat. It might not might not be my favourite story, but certainly the most amusing, I think. And we were filming ocelots in Costa Rica. It's this private reserve, and the people there told us that there was an ocelot that they had rescued from a village. It had been taken from the wild into a village a few years earlier, and it was being held as a pet. And the people who own this reserve, they rescued the ocelot released it into the reserve and now the ocelot wanders around and, and kind of lives free and and as wild as it could and and so we knew that if we went into this forest and we found the ocelot it would be quite comfortable with us filming it going about its business and we spent day after day trying to find this ocelot in in the forest and then one night i was laying in bed in my tent 
and I heard this kind of really creepy sound coming from under my bed, which was yum 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 yum, and that that's a sound that ocelots make. So I looked under my bed, and there, sure enough, was an ocelot eating my pants <laughs> under my bed, and this muddy trail uh, 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 in, into my tent, and, and so I kind of. I kind of shooed her out, and it turns out it turns out that I'm allergic to ocelot oh, because no. my face swelled up, my eyes were watering, and uh, and I could see how she was getting in because when I zipped my tent back up about 20 minutes later, it, I, I could see her claw came in and start and started wriggling with the zip, kind of making it wider and wider and wider. Why on earth she wanted to get into my tent to eat my pants? I have no idea, but but it kind of gave us an indication of what she was doing. She was coming back to our camp every night hanging around our camp and then and then heading into the forest in the morning so so we knew that if we got up early enough we we could find her and follow her and and and, and eventually that's what happened and, and and we were able to spend a good amount of time filming her in the forest but such such a beautiful cat absolutely I stunning cats I don't, I don't know how you could actually beat that for a wildlife encounter if i'm honest but is there any kind of particular species or spectacle that you you kind of really want to see maybe not necessarily film but actually just see that you haven't yeah i i think where you get massive numbers of animals those just encounters where you're surrounded by wildlife is obviously a highlight of any filmmaker any anybody who loves natural history loves to be immersed in those kind of scenes and there's one place in zambia in in kasanka where you get millions of straw colored fruit bats you know, all arriving to feed feed on the fruiting trees, and I would absolutely love to go there and film that. It's, it's been filmed quite a few times, but I would love to just experience that. So many bats in in one place, and when when they leave at night, yeah, that I think will be quite enchanting. But I think in order to experience it properly, I'd love to be on tree platform high up in the trees, filming amongst it. I've seen large numbers of bats like like in Borneo leaving the caves in Borneo and that is amazing but imagine being there surrounded by them absolutely immersed in them it's kind of the, the, an experience I'd love to, to have one day gotta love a bat going back to Green Planet was there a particular ecosystem or I think we can probably guess which subject was your favourite but was there like a particular habitat or a place you visited from the series there's this desert in northern Mexico called the Gran Desierto, just giant sand dunes that go all the way from the border with the United States all the way to the coast. And it was actually the very, very first shoot of the series in very, uh, I think I think it was like Christmas 2018 when a scientist called me up and said, I've been monitoring the radar and a hurricane has just passed over this desert, the Gran Desierto in northern Mexico. I think it's probably dropped enough rain that we're going to have a wildflower bloom. And he was so excited because there hadn't been a wildflower bloom there for at least 20 years. And it's so remote, you know, just getting there was going to be a real challenge. But I thought, you know, the chance of getting such a rare wildflower bloom, we're going to have to go for it. So shortly after Christmas in very early 2019, we headed out to Arizona to meet the scientists. And the plan was we're going to drive over the border into Mexico and and spend a whole day driving over these giant dunes to where where the scientists thought that the rain had dropped. And hopefully we would have a wildflower bloom. And the scientists were pretty sure about this. And, And we landed in Arizona. And the next morning we were going to head out, but actually it was remarkable. The next morning we woke up and it was snowing in the middle of the Arizona desert. It was snowing that much. It was more snow that Arizona had seen in decades. 
So the very first shoot of the series, we were torn between filming a wildflower bloom in Mexico or filming snow in, <laughs> in Arizona all at the same time. And of course, we did the logical thing. We headed up the nearest mountain we could to film the, the giant saguaro cactus and the choya cactus being snowed upon. And we got the most amazing scenes. It's such a weird winter wonderland when you've just got these <laughs> giant cactus in the fog and it's snowing around yeah. you. Absolutely amazing. And we were dressed for the hot desert, so it was a freezing day. <laughs> and the next day, the snow had gone, and we drove over the desert, and, and we got to the location just before sunset. And the smell was just so... It was just so rich of San Verbena in Evening Primrose. And so we knew we'd hit the jackpot, and sure enough, we were in the middle of a wildflower bloom. And, and so we managed to get two of these incredibly rare events... On, on one trip it, it was it was just incredible incredible yeah. look and that's why actually answering your question that's why that desert was was the favorite place for me to be because we got those two magic moments and then you know those, those kind of moments they come around so infrequently they're so rare you know like i said to be able to get both of them on one trip i mean to even get one of them you know it would have been amazing but to get both yeah i, I, I think that's part of what we have to do in wildlife filmmaking we we can plan as much as we like. We can write scripts as much as we like, but nature, nature doesn't follow scripts. We have to respond to what nature does, and we have to make the most of of these moments. And our, our job is to capture these spectacles and tell these stories so that people can experience them as well. Was there a particularly difficult or tricky subject, like during filming? That was there one that gave you, I don't even want to say like the most kind of headache with trying to film, but was just was most challenging. Every plant, actually, can be a nightmare in, in its own way. And, and that, that's why we built these robotic systems that we call the triffids, in, in, just in order to kind of help us get close to plants and, and see them it, it kind of doing what, what they do. And we use the triffid to film this particular parasite, which is called Tristorix. Uh, it's, it's a desert mistletoe. And it's, there are these giant cactus in the Atacama Desert called a hedgehog cactus and they've got some of the largest spines of any cactus so you'd think that these cactus are pretty impenetrable that nothing could get to them but this tristorix plant has found a way to, to attack the hedgehog cactus and it travels inside the gut of a mockingbird a chilean mockingbird that eats the fruit and it carries the seed inside its gut and the mockingbird lands on the top of these tall hedgehog cactus and poos and that's the way that these seeds get to the hedgehog and they stick to the spines of the hedgehog. And, when, and once they are on the spine, they then do something absolutely remarkable. And this is the bit that took five attempts to film. It was so difficult to get this happening. But eventually, we filmed one of these seeds germinating. And when it germinates, it sends out this long red tentacle that, that looks like a science fiction alien probe. It kind of grows out of the seed. And it grows slowly towards the body of the cactus. And when it makes contact with the cactus, it latches on like a leech and starts like almost spreading its, its at the end of, it, of the probe like a leech's head. And then it waits. And that was the bit that took five attempts to film and many, many months to film that bit. But actually, the next bit of the story is just as remarkable because it's like Invasion of the Body Snatchers. The Tristorix spreads throughout the entire cactus body and then a year later it bursts out of the cactus and uh, with these kind of red fingers and those fingers bloom as flowers and then a hummingbird comes along and pollinates the flowers. So all of those pieces 
needed filming at different times in different ways using different bits of technology and i think that kind of demonstrates how complex it is filming a plant story if you're filming an animal it's about being in the right place at the right time when the animal starts doing its thing you basically capture the moment you, you film it all you get close-ups you get wide shots and you can capture and film a whole story in one day with animals if you're lucky with plants could take many many months it could take five different trips it can take lots of technology and it's those time lapse of moments like the tentacle growing that are the most challenging of all i think it has been and i'm sure like anyone that's seen it will agree like it's it's an incredibly interesting series because you say it's just using all this new technology really kind of getting in there and seeing plants in a completely different light you know for those of us that absolutely love plants anyway we don't really need to change our opinions on them but for anyone that thinks plants are boring you need to watch the series because some of it just the way and the storytelling as well i think really really helps it's it really sheds a whole new kind of light onto plants and just how fascinating and interesting they are and the battles that they have in their habitats there's this thing called plant blindness that all the scientists were telling us about and they were saying that it's a real problem that they have they love plants as much as i do and as much as you do but the problem is the public see plants everywhere but they don't really see them they're blind to them they don't notice them and, and that was a big challenge for us is how do we put plants center stage so that people when you're walking through a woodland you look at a tree and you don't just see a bit of bit of wood you see a living breathing organism with its own battles its own challenges its own connections and plants underpin as david says at the beginning of the series you know plants underpin almost all life on earth they're our greatest ally against all the challenges that we have ahead of us and so we need to protect them and without plants a desert would be dead you know the animals in a desert are only there because the plants allow it kind of they pave the way for life tropical rainforests it's all plants you know it, it's the habitat which is just plants are the habitat they are the world and so that's why i love tropical rainforests and i love deserts because they're the, the two extremes of the green planet I have to admit, i'm one of the people that used to suffer from plant blindness but I, i'm slowly converting yeah you're, you're spot on i think it's even among natural historians and bird watchers and stuff plants are just something the bird's sitting in we need to look at the plants more and mm. i think the time lapse really helps with that i mean i'm a sucker for a good time lapse anyway i like making time lapses but you know showing the growth with the private life of plants which was how long ago was that 25 years ago or something you said 25 years yeah there was some brilliant stuff in that but now you've got those terrific cam you got like a panning shot as you're doing the time lapse and it just adds so much to it i think it's filming mm. plants like we film animals so in those time lapse scenes we're not just standing back mm. with a static camera anymore like they were 25 years ago we're kind of switching from perspective to perspective i, I like to think of, of that scene with the balsa at the beginning of the tropical episode i like to think of that as like the boxing match in rocky where you're there in the action perspective to perspective mm. flying around them moving around them we have these matrix shots where we just revolve completely around the characters and i think that's what brings it alive and that's what makes it as engaging as any science fiction drama uh, i can say about david as well i think this is interesting about david attenborough being a time traveler because he's one of the few people who seems to have been everywhere uh, do you remember that scene in the deserts episode where david is in the middle of the creosote bush yeah. 12,000 year old plant and I think most people would look at that plant if they were walking past it and they'd just go oh, that's a boring old brown shrub but that's 12,000 years old and the great thing about David is he was there standing in the middle of that circular creosote plant 40 years ago for the living planet and when I saw that living planet sequence I thought wouldn't it be awesome to take David back to that exact same plant stand him in the middle and see how it's changed and although it's one of the oldest plants on the planet in the past 40 years 
it seemed like everybody had forgotten about it. Like, even the people that managed the land, even all the local people, had never heard of it. They didn't know it existed. And so I tracked a scientist down who'd measured it several decades earlier, and he gave me a rough idea of where it was. And I had to go on Google Satellite View in order to find the plant big enough to be the one that David stood in the middle of. And so it took a lot of tracking down. And when we were there, there was absolutely no indication of how special this plant was at all. And But we were able to stand David right in the middle and blend the footage so that he time travels from 1982 to 2022. And we see that that while David's changed, the plant has grown less than an inch. What a contrast to the giant mirror pod tracks on Aaron where the first thing they say when you get there is, oh, David Etterborough sat here. Also, here's the, the tracks of the largest ever land arthropod that's ever lived. <laughs> <laughs> what a contrast. Yeah, it does need a massive sign, this plant, because, as I say, just because it looks boring doesn't mean it is. You've worked on so many different series. You've worked on Life and Cold Blood, which is a personal favourite of mine and Vic's for obvious reasons, because it's got reptiles and amphibians, which are, you know, among the coolest animals. The one particular sequence I want to talk to you about, which we did actually talk about before we started recording, is a certain giant leech versus a giant earthworm that you you <laughs> help film, which is, because long-time listeners of the show will know, I do have a bit of a phobia of leeches. So watching that, I had mixed feelings. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So uh, I'm very proud of that sequence. It's a giant red leech essentially sucking down a giant blue earthworm, eating it. And that's the most watched BBC Wildlife clip on YouTube, more than any of the big megafauna. Take that, lions. (laughs) (laughs) That we've filmed. And it shows you that there's a real appetite for those sequences where they're so freaky and horrid that actually you don't you don't want to look away you're fascinated and i i love stories like that showing the the freaky weird side of nature showing the underdogs the animals that people haven't seen before because the natural world's so rich with them and and in that particular story it was on mount kinabalu in borneo and i'd heard of these giant red leeches from the locals actually when my wife and i were on honeymoon there again we'd heard these stories about these giant red leeches and i thought it'd be great to film and we were on the mountain, actually, to film tree shrews pooing in pitcher plants. They have this great relationship, and so we filmed that. When I was on the mountain, I said to all the guides, if any of you can find a red leech or can see a giant blue worm, let me know. And then one day it rained so much, one of the guides came up and told me he'd found one. And we headed down the mountain to where it was, and there, sure enough, there were a group of these giant blue worms, as long as my arm, iridescent, blue, absolutely beautiful worms, and as as they kind of move along the ground, there's this giant leech. It's red. That is also as long as my arm. And it was kind of moving like a sniffer dog, kind of using its mouth to kind of feel along the ground, following where the worm was going. And when the leech gets to the worm, it uses its mouth to kind of taste up and down the worm's body. It's really, really freaky, and its lips are quivering. And then it feels up and down the worm's body and then and then its mouth parts go to the end of the worm and then it just starts to suck. And it's the weirdest thing to see a giant red leech sucking down a giant blue worm like spaghetti. I would say that's probably one of the most amazing things I've ever filmed. That footage was just, it's between that and I don't know if you've seen, there was a, a shot done for Spring Watch, I think it was, of these cute little, cover your ears Vic, cute little toadlets hopping round by a lake and a horse leech comes up behind one and just bye bye toadlet which because toadlets are the cutest animals on earth as i'm sure vic won't disagree with yes they are 
toadlets and froglets are by far the cutest animals on oh, the planet. That, but and of course, you know, combined with my feelings of leeches as well. But I still think that's one of the best bits of wildlife footage I've seen. It's just horrifying because you can see the poor little toadlet. It goes in back end first. It's horrifying. A couple of years again, Vic. Something I'd love to film and see myself. <laughs> if I have nightmares tonight, Neil, I'm coming after you. Oh, gosh. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm already going to have nightmares about the giant leech again, but there we go. It's, honestly, uh, if you haven't seen it, guys, go go check it out. It's on. It's quite easy to find on YouTube, isn't it? It's uh, an extraordinary bit of footage. Yeah. If you've not had a chance to watch Green Planet yet as well, please do go. It's on iPlayer. So, you know, I think, you know, do go and check it out and, and give it a watch because it is absolutely fascinating. And it really does, you know, give plants the spotlight that they quite rightly deserve. They are stunning and fascinating plants. Um, so, please do give it a watch i think we'll end it there because we could probably talk for like we always say this but certainly in this case we could talk for another five or six episodes worth of stuff on on, on what stuff you've seen but we'll wrap it up there paul but thank you so much for coming on it's been absolutely fascinating yeah huge thank you for for kind of coming on and chatting to us thanks thanks very much thanks neil thanks vic so paul they can go and see green planet on bbc one on sundays at uh seven o'clock seven o'clock there you go i should remember that um, and also an iplayer as we said but where can people follow you because you're on twitter and instagram aren't you G- going back to my paleontology days i gave myself the, the kind of tag name iron ammonite i-r-o-n underscore ammonite because i like pyrotized fossils so that's me online you've got some clips on your website and you've got you've got a youtube channel as well yeah but my youtube channel has embarrassing videos from quite a while ago <laughs> <laughs> So I'll let people punt that down if they want to then. <laughs> oh yes. Well there's some clips on your website as well you can get from the Instagram too. So uh yeah. yeah. Well thanks very much for coming on Paul. It's much appreciated. Yeah. And everyone else, see you next time. Bye for now. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the UK Wildlife Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on Apple Podcast or whichever podcast service you use. You can follow us on Twitter at UK Wildlife Pod, or one word. Or on Instagram at UK Wildlife Podcast. And like us on our Facebook page, UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can also post to the UK Wildlife Podcast community group. If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UK Wildlife Podcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UK Wildlife Pod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips. The music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.